Friends, let us pray. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God. Have mercy on us. Speak, Lord, for your children are listening. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation on all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength, our hope, our rock, our love, and our Redeemer. Amen. Sometimes you just need a minute. No texting, no emails, no calls, no Netflix, maybe a little music playing softly in the background. Why? Because sometimes life can be too much. The weight of the world, the burden of the day, it can be grueling. You see, we were made for breaks. We were made for Sabbath. I heard that a moment is described as 90 seconds. Just a little more time for some deep breaths that a minute will not offer. And whether we take a minute or a moment, it is the space between that we encounter ourselves, that we get to examine our current situation, that we allow for the possibility of a divine experience. Elijah, Elijah needed more than a minute. Elijah needed more than a moment. He was ready to hit the pause button. He was ready to take a long break. He was ready to stop ministry. In fact, he was done with life altogether. Elijah was a prophet in troubling times. He had a strenuous ministry context. If he were an associate pastor, this would have been considered a toxic environment with a compromise in leadership at the top. The scriptures speak of Ahab and Jezebel as a terrible duo. Ahab King over Israel marries this Canaanite woman who is committed to her Canaanite storm god, Baal. The corruption in leadership had this triple-down effect into the lives of the people of Israel. Ahab had Canaanite temples built in honor of Baal, a complete rejection of God's commands for the children of Israel to worship God and to worship God alone. And Elijah... Elijah was a prophet called to speak out against these idolatrous practices. He was called to speak out against the religious corruption of the day. He was called to live a life of obedience and trust as he followed God on this unbelievable journey. While Elijah's call and vocation was difficult, he was privileged. He was privileged to bear witness to the miraculous and mighty hand of God moving in his own life and in the lives of others around him. You see, in the midst of a drought, God fed Elijah with ravenous birds that should have killed him while he drank from the wadi cherith. 
When there was a shortage of food, God provided an endless supply of oil and meal that sustained him, a widow, her son, and an entire family. In the face of the shadow of death, God heard the prayers of Elijah and raised a sick boy from the dead. Even though his ministry context was prickly, Elijah had first-hand experience bearing witness to the power of God. And these miracles, they led him to a holy showdown between the prophets of Israel and the prophets of Baal. I always imagine this scene like a Wild West movie. Elijah offers a challenge that will end all rumors as to which God was the best. And so two altars were set. And so the altar that would be consumed by fire would be the one that would be declared the winner. It was either the God of Israel or the God of Baal. And you remember how the story goes. The prophets of Baal cried out to no avail, receiving no response from this Canaanite storm god who should have had some control over the elements. And Elijah keeps it cool, stands by the altar, tilts his head back and prays. And just like that, fire consumes the altar that belonged to the Israelites, proving that the God of Israel was the one true God. Now, I'll tell you as a minister of word and sacrament, this should have been enough. Elijah should have just been able to check this off on his vocational to-do list. Beat the prophets of Baal? Check done for the day. But the text tells us that Elijah had the prophets of Baal killed. It was in retaliation for what Jezebel had done to the prophets of Israel. Yes, they always skip over this part in Sunday school class. (laughs) You see, Elijah was going to need more than a moment. This bold move of retaliation put him in the hot seat with Jezebel. She promised to do to him what had been done to the devotees of Baal. She put a hit out on his life. This was way worse than upsetting the property committee or the trustees. This was way worse than sending that snarky email to the senior pastor. His actual life was on the line. Elijah needed more than a minute. He needed more than a moment He needed to run, and so he did. He needed to escape, and so he did because he was afraid. He was deathly afraid, and rightly so. This situation was too much for any prophet to handle. And in our text this morning, we find Elijah exhausted and on the run and burned out in ministry. He had one request in one request alone. Lord, take my life. Lord, I don't want this anymore. Lord, this is a battle that I can no longer fight. Lord, I can't win in this situation. Lord, if you love me, remove me from this whole thing. In Elijah's frailty and in his weakness, He lays down under that broom tree, ready to give up the ghost in Elijah's frailty and in his weakness. God was gracious and kind 
and offered him yet another divine encounter. That angel that came to minister to him used words that were familiar, take this cake and eat. Take this jar of water and drink. Bread and cup were nourishment for him. Take this cake and eat. These words were spoken to him to remind him of the nature and the character of God. These words were spoken to him to remind him that God fed him once before in the house of that widow in Zarephath when they thought that they would die, but they didn't. Take this jar and drink. These words were spoken to him to remind him of the refreshing waters of the Wadi Cherith that God sent him to that place to be nourished in the midst of a drought. Take this cake and eat. Take this jar and drink. This sacramental moment was put in place to remind him of the power of God even in his weakened state. He was offered a sacramental meal to nourish him for the spiritual and physical journey ahead. In his weakness, in his frailty, he makes the journey to Mount Horeb to have a little talk with God. I can only imagine the amount of energy it took. I can only imagine how he set his intention on one thing. Lord, I'm coming to you so that you can release me from this difficulty. Lord, I'm coming to you because I have no desire to carry this weight any longer. Elijah reached his destination, and the conversational choreography between him and God began. Lord, I'm here, so you can take all of this away. The Lord said, all right, just wait right here. I'm going to hang a left and pass on through. I can only imagine what Elijah was thinking and feeling alone in the cave. I imagine him alone replaying the inner video in his mind about how his life will perhaps come to the end at the hands of Jezebel. I imagine him alone hearing the sound of his own heart pounding in his chest and waiting and waiting and waiting. How long before the Lord will pass by? Will God make it all better? Will he take this issue away? Will they stop the pain? In this conversational choreography, God moves around with him and offers some familiar elements. There's a strong wind, but still no answer. There's an earthquake, and still no answer. There's fire, but still no answer. And then there was the sound of sheer silence. I think that perhaps this sound was unlike any of the other encounters that Elijah had had with God up until this point. This sound was not the way he was used to communicating with God, but in it he knew that there was clarity on the way. He knew that the voice of God was on the way. And that silence spoke volumes. 
Prepare yourself, Elijah. Now is the time to open yourself up to hear the voice of God. Get ready, for God is about to respond to your faintest cry. The saga of Elijah's life between miracles and begging for mercy speaks to what sustains us in our own spiritual journey. The broom tree and the cave represent two aspects of our spiritual lives that nourish us, sacrament and silence. As Presbyterians, we rejoice in the role of sacraments in worship. And even when they are not present in a particular worship experience, we keep the font filled with fresh water to remind us of the renewing waters of baptism. We pour water into the font to remember that we have been called and claimed as beloved children of God, for that is who we are. And even when we are not celebrating the Lord's table, it is still set with fresh bread and cup. It's there to remind us that that is the table where we find nourishment. We get sacraments and the ways in which we are sustained for the journey when we participate in them. But silence? Silence in worship? You see, that's another story. I, at two, am a liturgical timekeeper, and I will tell you that we got about an hour or so to get a whole lot of stuff done in the name of the Lord. Thanks be to God and amen. I mean, we have anthems and hymns. We have scriptures and prayers. We have sacraments and announcements. Good job on that. We have confessions and creeds. And last but not least, we have the preaching moment. Silence in worship is not our strong suit. But let's be honest. We cannot blame the contours of our worship service on our own resistance to silence. Silence brings up a lot of things for us. You see, we've, con we've been conditioned to favor noise. We are consumers of sound. We find ourselves drawn to distractions. But silence? Silence makes us uncomfortable after a while. If we give room for silence, we might not be in control. That's a gift of the Spirit, if you haven't read that. <laughs> If we give room for silence, then other thoughts that we have might come up to the surface. We might have to face our fears in the silence. We might have to deal with our anger in the silence. We might have to admit our weakness in the silence. We might have to acknowledge our unfulfilled dreams in the silence. Things might change in the silence. In a book entitled The Sunlit Absence, Villanova professor and writer Martin Laird sheds insight into the world of silence and contemplation in the Christian experience. Laird says this, our culture for the most part trains us to keep our attention riveted to this surface noise, which in turn maintains the illusion of God as a distant object for which we must seek as for th something we are convinced we lack. He goes on to say, one of the greatest mysteries of the contemplative path is the discovery that when the veils of separation drop, we see 
that the God we have been seeking has already found us, knows us, and sustains us in being from all eternity. Laird's book is a reminder that this silence grounds us. This silence reorients us to the truth that God is with us, that God is present, that God holds us in each and every moment. He talks about the role of silence and meditation and prayer in the life of every believer. For many of us, we have decided that it's okay to practice silent meditation of other traditions, like a yoga class or mindfulness but we fail to see the strong Christian heritage that we have for making space for God in the quiet. The ancient church mothers and fathers demonstrated the power of sitting in silence with the theological framework of praying a sentence of scripture or a simple word. They modeled practices like the Jesus prayer where one simply breathes in Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, and breathes out, have mercy on us. This space-making and theological framing also nourishes us in the life of faith. Laird talks about our inner videos, our images and scenarios that plague our hearts and minds. We run the tapes of situations that we can't control. We run the film footage of things that needs to be fixed now, all the regrets that we have. We play these videos over and over and over again. But this contemplation, this space-making, this room for silence has a way of reminding us of what is true, that God is here, that God is with us, that God grounds us, that God reorients us and that God has given us everything we need to carry the mantle that has been passed to us. And so if silence grounds us and nourishes us like sacrament, what would it look like to make space when we gather together in worship to be still before God and to live in that silence together? Now, I will be the first to admit to you that I am not completely comfortable with words like silence and contemplation. A church member a few years back sent me to a mindfulness class because in their own nice and gentle way, they thought I was a little stressed out in one of those session meetings. So I went, eight weeks, slightly uncomfortable, but it was an introduction into breathing and creating space for the mind to process all that happens in the world. And so I learned some great practices in that mindfulness class that I use to this day to settle my mind and my body in the face of difficult situations. But it was on a pastor's conference last year that I was reminded that silence in the theological framework of worship nourishes the soul in the same way that the sacraments feed the soul. We were on a credo conference in Henryville, Indiana, and silence was built into our extended worship experience. 
And by silence, I mean like two hours. Now, I have one of my colleagues who was there, and if you ask her, she'll probably say it was about 45 minutes. But for me, it felt like two hours of silence. We were encouraged to spread out and sit, and we had to experience this silence before we reconvened for a time of prayer and healing led by our mentor pastors. I didn't want two hours, not even 45 minutes of silence because I knew what would come up for me. You see, in the silence, what would come up for me was what I faced back home. For me, back home, it means watching my 40-year-old husband suffer on hospice watching my husband slowly dying from a rare degenerative neurological condition. It's a condition that has robbed him of so much and continually leaves us with so little time, even to this day. So there I was on the covered porch, in the rain, all that silence, Silence and fear and anger and tears began to whirl around me. I hate this, I shouted in my mind. I hate this, I screamed in my spirit. All I needed was a solitary broom tree, and Elijah and I would have been twins. But it was after the silence that I heard these words, don't hate it, see it. Don't hate it, see it. See it for what it is, the beauty and the brokenness. See it for what it is, the solemn and the sacred. It was out of that space-making that the choreography of conversation between God and I took place. And God did not respond in the way that I would have expected, but God spoke. And God nourished my soul. And God gave me everything that I needed to get back to it. Elijah's conversation with God was also quite simple. He hated his situation, but God gave him some tools. Elijah's journey reminds us that God gives us tools too. Elijah's journey reminds us that making space for God can lead to some amazing things. I'd like to leave you with three things to remember. First, make space for God in public and in private worship. Once a month at Wayne and at the Commonplace, we open up our doors for, we call it midday prayer at Wayne, and we call it the gathering in Southwest Philadelphia. And it's just a time for people to sit in the sanctuary and pray and be and enjoy the stillness and get involved with this choreographed conversation with God. 8.30 at our church before worship starts, there's a centering prayer group. What would it look like to add a little more silence in worship? Some worshiping communities after the sermon, folks sit down and they wait. 
and they listen and they open themselves up. Make space for God in worship, whether it's public or private. Second, name the people on your journey. If you continue on in the text, Elijah was given Hazael and Jehu and Elisha as people who would help him along the journey. Moses had Aaron and Hur, who literally held his arms up on either side. Jesus had disciples. But even our Lord pulled a few folks over to the side for that intimate circle. So take a moment and let God name the people who have been called to walk beside you, to encourage you, to help carry the load as you carry the mantle. Third and finally, get back to it. We live in a culture that loves to escape. We live in a society that loves shortcuts, but sometimes you just have to take the long road home. And after that conversation with God, Elijah had to go back to it. But he had a new framework. He had experienced the voice of God in a different way. He realized that he had a constant companion for the journey. And all he had to do was live by faith and get back to it. So what would happen if I stepped out of this pulpit? I'm wireless, so anything could happen. What would happen if I took this chair and I sat it right here? What would happen if I sat down and I said, I don't know the next time you're going to have a moment gather together with the people of God to stop and to breathe and to be. One of the things I learned in that mindfulness class was 20 breaths, and don't be afraid, we won't do 20, but we're going to do some. So I invite you, however you are seated, you don't even have to take your shoes off, just get relaxed where you are. I did this with some youth in Canada, and one of the students was jittery and jumping. He said, Aisha, what if I can't keep still? I said, well, just keep moving, but I just need you to keep breathing. And so we're going to take a moment. We're going to breathe in and breathe out. You can keep your eyes open and look at the beautiful imagery around you. You can close your eyes. But I just asked you to breathe. So let us do so.
Jesus Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus Christ, Son of the living Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.